You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. I want you to turn in your Bibles to our text. I like to hear the pages turn. Um, so 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to look at that with me. And in just a moment, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. But before that, I want to lay a little foundation and I want your attention to do that because the energy level of my sermon this morning is high. It's high because, you know, sometimes a pastor is preaching on a message that really fits uh, the DNA of his, of his style or his uh, personality. And I, this fits me perfectly. I mean, this is such an exciting message uh, in our spiritual warfare series, Fighting to Win. We're going to be specifically this morning talking about how to win the battle. Which means ultimately, by the end of the message, we're going to be going on the offense here. And I feel like there's so much in Scripture that gives us uh, a a confidence. We've been singing this morning uh, confidently about the name of Jesus, the beautiful, powerful, wonderful name of Jesus. And we today claim the victory together. Martin Luther said this a few hundred years ago. He said, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble, and again, we just sang the song, tremble, so we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Those are some powerful words. But that word that will fail him has not yet been spoken. We live still in this gap. We know he's defeated, but he's still the prince of the darkness of of this world and and the prince of the power of the air. And there's some things that you and I as believers are understanding about the armor of God and how that fits into our everyday living. I was thinking, you know, if if... If I want to be a good cook, it might be good for me to get a cookbook. And that's and even if I got a cookbook, I still wouldn't be a good cook. But I know my wife has some cookbooks. And oftentimes she goes to that cookbook to, to cook a particular recipe that she, wants to, that, that she wants to cook. If you want to be a good mechanic, it might be good for you to get a good mechanic's manual and study it. And know more about how to be a good mechanic. If you want to be good on the gridiron, the football field... Probably getting a playbook would be advantageous to you becoming a good football player. But you know, I believe if you were to become a more equipped follower of Jesus Christ, it might be helpful if you go to God's playbook, which is the Word of God, and to know it and to memorize it, to understand why and where it fits in to the armor of God. So this morning, I want to talk to you about how to defeat the enemy, very specifically. Very specifically. That's why last week we spoke on the five pieces of armor and saved this one for last. So I want to build up to the sword of the Spirit. I want to talk to you about some other things. I want to jump into some things here. Let me first remind you that the only sure way that we can totally depend on defeating the enemy is the book that God wrote. So keep that in mind. The Word of God. The Bible. And so let's look today at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to jump into this text. This is a thrilling passage of Scripture. And the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3, 4, and 5, the context is spiritual warfare. That's the context. And so I'm going to read you these three verses this morning, and you look along in your word as we read these. Verse 3, not yet for the screen. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war... According to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive To obey Christ. That, my friends, is a phenomenal passage of Scripture. 
And let's break it down for just a few moments, beginning with thought number one from our text. And that is this. The battle can be won. Amen. Let's say it together. Would, would you join me in saying that very incredible statement, true statement? Say it with me. One, two, three. The battle can be won. Say it with a little more confidence together. The battle Very good. The battle can be won, church. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3a, it says, For though we walk in the flesh. For just a moment, let's talk about that. We walk. We are walking in this world at this moment, in this time. 32 times the Apostle Paul used that word as a metaphor for life. Just the fact that we are walking in the flesh in this life. We live our lives with, uh, with limitations of time. Limitations of space, with limitations even of strength, of our physical abilities. And though we live our lives limited by who we are physically, there's more to life than just the physical. In fact, notice, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The next part of the verse. Yes, we walk in the flesh, but we are not waging war according to The flesh. Now, it's interesting that if you were to ask the average person, and I'm really the average person this morning. I'm someone who at times would probably have answered the question in the way that I'm going to share with you this morning. But if you were to ask the average person at some time in their life, how is it that you can conquer the things that would conquer you in life? They would say, as I have said at times, well, you just got to try harder. You got to give more effort. You have to be more aggressive. You have to go out there and just take a hold of things. But that's not what the Bible says. And I stand corrected this morning for the times maybe I've even given that advice. More effort is not the way to defeat the enemy. Trying harder, taking a hold of your life. Again, verse 3 for though we walk in the flesh, remember now, we're not waging war according to our physical abilities. You see, the real way to win victory is not more effort in the flesh. That's not the way to win. It's not physical talent. It's not physical strength or personality that wins the real battle. It's not swords, spears, guns, and tanks. But even though those are not our weapons... We do have weapons. Amen. Those are not our weapons. But we do have weapons, just not physical weapons. So again, looking at this text, there are four words that describe our weapons. I want you to look at those four words with me. The first word I want you to notice is our weapons are divine. Notice it says in verse number, uh, verse four, not of the flesh, but have divine. Oh, that word divine is a beautiful word. It's speaking of these weapons being weapons that are used to God's advantage for God's purposes. These are weapons that are to God and for God and with God. And so as I fight temptation, and I do, and you do, and as I dismiss sinful thoughts, and as I defeat the onslaught of the enemy in my life, I do that Not with my own strength, but I do it in reference to God. Because they're not of the flesh. They're divine. These weapons I'm talking about this morning are from God. Notice, secondly, the word I want you to notice is they are powerful. In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, they are not of the flesh, but they have divine power. Wow. They're not weak weapons. They are powerful weapons. They're not dull weapons. These are powerful weapons. In other words, if you get God's weapons working for you, I'm going to tell you something. They are powerful. They're powerful. Look again at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare, not of the flesh. But they have divine power. Notice the next word. It says to destroy. The third word I want you to see there is that our weapons destroy. They're divine, they're powerful, and they destroy. 
I can assure you that God doesn't want Satan quieted in your life. God wants Satan silenced in your life. God doesn't want Satan contained. He wants him quarantined. God doesn't want Satan limited. God wants Satan destroyed. His divine power is to destroy these things we're talking about that come against us from the enemy in just a moment. God's divine power can provide total devastation to the enemy's attack in your life. And then I want you to notice the word stronghold. It says here that they're not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Maybe your version may read, your translation may read fortresses. Only here in the Bible is this term used. It's a technical military term. And it's used for a fortified place. That's what it's used for. So picture with me, if you would, please, a fortified place. Maybe a high tower. A fortified place. A place that is well fortified with guns and tanks and bullets and arrows and soldiers, right? And so here you are. You're looking at this high tower and you're looking at all the enemies fortress and all of the guns and warfare pointed at you and if you are like me in the flesh my response to this stronghold is i'm done i'm finished man there's just no hope there's no way i could defeat the enemy how could i possibly take this fortress well in just a moment we're going to learn how to take it because there is a way to take it The way to take this stronghold, this fortress, is by God's divine power to destroy it. God's divine power to destroy this stronghold, this fortress in your life. So what are these strongholds? What are they? Let's identify them in the scriptures. These strongholds are systems of thinking, patterns of thinking, so entrenched in our minds that we can hardly discern them. I mean, even as believers, sometimes we are tricked by the deception of Satan himself. And without even realizing it, we find ourselves watering down our stand for God, our belief in the scriptures. We find ourselves without even discerning it, weakening our positions on things that we believed at one time. These are thoughts that keep coming back. Over and over again. Because they are, it's a stronghold, it's a fortress, and they are in control, uh, they are controlled by the enemy. In fact, we see it sometimes spelled out in our media. I mean, you can see that the enemy is in control of the majority of the media. And it's interesting to see some of these, you know, things that are said about Christianity and the Bible and our beliefs. The New York Times had an, recently had a journalist, Anthony Davis, write these words, the phenomenon. Think about this. The phenomenon of religious fundamentalism is not to be found in Islam alone. Rather, fundamentalist Christians in America believing that the Bible story of creation as literal truth question not only Darwin, but the scientific method that has made contemporary civilization possible. I mean, if, everybody knows that, right? And don't argue with that. That's, just a, that's, that's what the world says, and that's what we should believe, or else we're just like Islam. In an interview the following day, Mr. Lewis compared Osama bin Laden to the Christian politician under Bush's administration, John Ashcraft, He compared the two and said, both men, sure of what they believed, are thus supportive of indecent and inhuman policies because certainty is the enemy of decency. That's you, folks. That's me. Certainty. It's the enemy of decency. So anybody believes then that you can know for sure. Anybody believes that you can categorically understand something. Anybody who believes that God has written a book is to be attacked. It's the day we live in. This is the prince of the power of the air. This is the world's system. This is the thinking that is entrenched in the minds of so many. Even sometimes we see it in our churches. And that's the attack we're in. It's real. 
It's a real attack. We're getting specific this morning. But verse 4, again, I remind you, says that these weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Let's remember that. And so it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to stop hiding behind some relational middle ground and let the power of God speak for itself. You know, a message like this back in my, 20 years ago in this church, people would have said it like this, man, preacher, you really shucked the corn this morning. You know, sometimes people want to identify preaching that is somewhat straightforward. I'm not talking. Listen, we've got way too much relational middle ground going on, even in gospel light. Way too much. I don't want to add any offense to the gospel. So let's take kind of a gray area here. Let's not be certain about this. Let's give in. It's not a big deal. It's not important. I mean, yeah, it says it in the Bible, but there are other things that the Bible says that are much more important. And so we find ourselves just on this relational middle ground thing. And I really believe, church, there's never been a time where we need to put on the armor of God and stand. The truth of the matter is, is I'm not talking about being mean-spirited and ugly. Listen, that's something I've tried to never be. I really have tried. I've failed at times, but my, my goal, especially in the last seven to ten years, as God has rearranged so much of my thinking, and not my theological positions at all, really. That, that has not changed, but my, 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 my disposition has changed. And I understand that the truth spoken in love works. I'd rather tell you the truth in love that will change your life than to water down the truth to try to keep you as a friend. And not see you at all affected by the power of God that can break down the strongholds that are, that are wearing you down and, your fam- and destroying your family. And so the battle can be won. Number two, the battle is fought in our minds. Again, we're going to the scriptures here. This is where the battle is going on. It's what we think. It's what we believe is true. Notice, if you would please, in verse number five of our text, it says that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. I want you to notice the words arguments. I've got them capitalized on the screen. Lofty opinion. Every thought. Take note to those words that indicate the battle is here. It's in our minds. It's how we think. So if you have a hard copy or maybe even an electronic copy where you can identify those words, take time to maybe circle those words or highlight the word, first of all, argument. Argument. Speculations in some translations. In the King James, imaginations. We are destroying. Here's what we're casting away. Here's what we're taking captive. Here's what we're getting rid of. We are destroying Every opinion that opposes God's agenda. Amen. This is the argument. And then it says every lofty opinion. What is the lofty opinion? It's the attitude that goes with the argument. It's the attitude that goes with the argument. It says this. It's when the world says, look, I'm the only one that's right. And I don't see how you can even think otherwise. This is the only opinion. This is the truth. And how dare you suggest anything differently? And the enemy causes the opposition to be so strong. And what happens is, is even in the church and in our thinking and in our stand for God, in our homes, these arguments, these opinions begin to creep in. We don't take them captive. We don't take them out. They begin to affect our children and our marriages. And the things that that we used to take seriously, we're not really taking seriously anymore. We didn't even realize it was happening. See, Satan's a deceiver. And these thoughts and these opinions and these arguments. And so this morning, I want to give you five specific arguments. I would say that they are fortresses. They are so prevalent in our society. They are on all the airwaves. They are in all the universities. Did you hear me? 
every university, every public school. These are the arguments. These are what our kids are hearing. This is what is being taught. This is even what we oftentimes are reading. This is so intertwined in our thinking that the enemy is controlling a lot of the thinking of even even the church. These are strongholds. These are in our head. These are intertwined in our culture. And we need to take them captive. We need to tear them down. Number one, here's the first one, evolution. Evolution. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? Now, amazingly, and I'm no expert on these things, but I can tell you that the scientific evidence for evolution is increasingly sparse and it's scattered with massive gaps in between. Amen? And and, and again, I I don't expect everybody to know all about this and these things, and sometimes it's just easier to say, you know, that that God said it, I believe it, that settles it regarding creation, and I'm with you, but yet this is thinking that is being challenged Many times as a result of Satan's control. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 and 19 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed. Listen. From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness. Pay attention. Focus. By their unrighteousness. Look at what scripture says. They suppress the truth. And here's why they do it. For what? can be known about God is very plain to them because God has shown it to them, but they don't want to believe it's true because if they believe it's true that we did and that we did diverge from animals and apes, then guess what? There is a God in heaven who will give an account to one day. So they don't want to believe that. They suppress the truth in order to teach a lie. Again, in verse number five, it says lofty, a lofty opinion. How dare you believe anything differently other than this? So the enemy has control of the thinking of this world. And by the way, there is so much scientific evidence for creation. It's incredible. Yesterday, I studied my office and I just thought, you know what? I'm going to look some things up. And I I had a blast. I I got carried away and it it, it actually, uh, unfortunately, not bad, but moved into my, my family time yesterday because I got caught up in Ken Ham videos. <laughs> I got caught up in watching some of the most amazing videos. And by the way, how many of you, we did this in the first service, I'll just try it. How many of you have ever been to the Creation Museum and or the Ark that has been recently been constructed? Wow, good. I would say a good couple dozen people in this service. That's amazing. And isn't it amazing? And to take your children to these places, it, it's, it's life-changing. It really is. It's, a, it's very eye-opening. And I thank God for Ken Ham. And we should probably have somebody like that here once a year just to, just to talk about these things because it is absolutely awesome. Filling our minds with truth is what we need. Why do we need to fill our minds with truth? So we can stand against the speculation of the world. So that we can stand against the arguments and the lofty opinion of the world. Here's another one, evolution, egalitarianism. It's a long word. In fact, it'll take you a while to write it down. You'll have to look up at the screen three or four times. What is this? I know it's more prevalent in the the theological world explaining this subject, but this is the blurring of the role distinctions between men and women. And I'm going to tell you this right now. This is creeping into the church for fear that we would offend anyone. And yet, the message of the gospel regarding role distinctions is absolutely beautiful. God's plan for the man and the woman is absolutely brilliant. Fathers and mothers, we are told, are the same in the blurring of role distinctions. Husbands and wives, interchangeable, we're told. Unisex, two men can be the head of a household. Two women can raise children just as well as a husband and wife can raise children. It's no different. And to argue that, you're crazy. We're living in 20, 2020. Come on, man. That's stupid. You're, you're, you're a, you, you, you must hate people, we're told. This is driven by those who want to dismiss the God-given distinctions between a man and a woman. But let's be clear this morning. And I feel like through the years I've been pretty clear that the Bible very clearly teaches that men and women are equal under God in every way. Amen. That was okay to say amen right there. We are equal under God in every way. But we're not the same. We're not the same. And when a man and a woman come together in marriage, 
each of them is more than they could ever be on their own. I thank God for my wife, Carol Ann. I can assure you how limited I would be if I did not have the complementary nature of her partnership in my life. I would not be anything like I am today. I'm so grateful that God has given me a partner, equal in every way and yet different. In other words, men don't make good mothers. And women don't make good fathers. Listen, God's ideal is for one man and one woman for life. And that's why we must pray for the single parents in our church who are in this difficult role. I've experienced that in my own family as my mother raised two boys. I've watched, we we walked alongside Tiffany for a couple, three years as she raised two boys before marrying my son. What respect we have and how we need to come alongside single parents and how we're many times dropping the ball in, in the church when it comes to those environments. We need to do better. There's a third one, economics. Economics. This is affecting every home in this room, whether you see it or not. This argument is so intertwined in our minds that we can hardly recognize its era. And it's this. It's the idea that having and happiness are somehow related. But they're not. They're not related at all. If I could just have this, if I I could just have that, If I could just have this much money or that much money or this house or that house or this car or that car. We try to make a hookup that the Bible doesn't make between having and happiness. We can't make that hookup because the Bible doesn't make that hookup. The happiest people on this earth many times have nothing. I enjoyed some great fellowship with Jim Thomas yesterday in our church. Jim, thanks for hanging out with me. Jim and I found ourselves, actually, it was, it, was, it was so cool. It was me, Jim, and Glow. <laughs> I told Jim, I said, Jim, I'll pick you up at your house. I said, you mind if I take Glow with me? He knows Glow. He loves Glow. He said, sure. So me, Jim, and Glow hung out for a few hours. We found ourselves at Freddy's Burgers because Jim's wife's nursing her sick brother back to health. And he said he ain't been eating very good. So we went to Freddy's. Amen. That's good eating. And I like to talk. I like to ask questions. And so I'm asking Jim questions because Jim, is a, he's, a, he's just a great storyteller. He's got great stories, great thoughts. And I said, Jim, I said, what was the greatest memory of your childhood? He paused. He said, greatest memory of my childhood. I got it. It was the fact that I didn't know I was poor. I said, Jim, that's awesome. Expound on that. He said, I just didn't know I was poor. I mean, I, that's the greatest memory of our childhood. I remember, I mean, we, we went outside. We'd make balls out of tape, and, and, and we'd go to sandlots and, 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 and play until mom called us inside, and we'd, we'd drink water out of spigots. And, 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 and I mean, I just didn't know I was poor. I mean, I, I just, that was a great memory of my childhood is that we didn't have anything, but we didn't know we didn't have anything. We were so happy. And I thought, man, thank you, God, for giving me that illustration before I preached this thought. Because God is so good to give us sometimes the things we need to sometimes even give further proof to a thought. Because we believe, church, in our culture that numbers and success are the same. We bought that lie. Recently, a preacher was asked the question, Hey, listen, there's been some concern about you, you know, preaching things that really aren't in the Bible, outside of the Bible. And, and how, do you, how do you justify that, being a man of God and, and pastoring a church? He said, well, I'll tell you what. I don't, I don't address it. It ought to be proof enough that my church is full, three, three services on Sunday. I mean, I preach the Bible every Sunday, but my church is full. Really? So, so a great church is identified as how many people attend it. Listen, whether it is money or people, more is not necessarily better. More is not better. Having is not happiness. Numbers is not success. We're casting that down this morning. We're casting that argument down, that lofty opinion down. Number four, experience. Experience. You know, if I could just experience some things. I hear a lot of single 
people say this in their early 20s, mid-20s, early 30s. You know, man, I just want to experience things. I want to travel and go here and go there and do some things and travel the world. And this is what will make me happy. I just want to, I want to just finish my bucket list by the time I'm 40 and just do this and do that and experience this and experience that. And yet the answers of life are not found out there somewhere searching. In fact, if I were to give some advice to a young person, I would say, settle down. Settle down. Get a job. Build a foundation. Get married. Build a family. Oh, listen, it's not found in experience. Cast that down. And yet some of the arguments and speculations of this world that Satan controls is, man, you just have an experience experienced life yet and then ego lastly ego says i'm at the center i'm all that really matters get out of my face i do what i think is right we see we see this already rising up in a generation of young people against their parents before they even graduate my parents are stupid they don't know what they're talking about i'm the master of my fate self-centeredness is an i me my mind thinking And tragically, this is so entrenched in the minds of people that they fail to live in community with any accountability. You approach someone these days about their life or their family and you get attacked. I mean, even as a pastor, sometimes I found myself lovingly approaching someone about a situation I'm concerned about. And I completely feel like it's none of my business and get out of my face and I don't want to talk to you. And listen, it's not your kids and your marriage. It's not my kids and my marriage. I suggest it's our kids and our marriages. We need each other. I've got five kids this morning and by the grace of God, notice I said by the grace of God, not by good parenting. By the grace of God, they're in church this morning serving God, all of them. And I thank God for that. It is by His grace they're here. But I'm going to tell you, There's been many a conversation that I'm grateful somebody in this building had with one of my five children, especially I could say one of my four children for obvious reasons. Conversations I never found out about. Conversations that my kids told me years later. You know, Dad, I sat down and I had a conversation with Dave Chittum. Had a conversation with youth pastors like Bob Ritter and others. Had a conversation with a deacon, a teacher. Man, Dad, really helped me. See, I couldn't have raised my kids without the help of community. We need each other. We need the church. We need youth group. We need small groups. We need community. That's the joy of the Christian life is we live in community. That's the way God designed it. And let the lofty thought and Silly argument that says, no, I control my life. I control my family. What I say goes, I don't need anybody's input. That is dangerous. But that is a lie Satan is feeding each of us. So the battle is fought in our minds. Again, remember 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, one more time. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Church, we must take every thought captive. And so now we come to the third thought. The battle can be won. Amen. And then we said, secondly, that the battle is fought in our minds. And finally, and in closing, the battle is fought in our minds, but it's won with Scripture. It's won with Scripture. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to introduce you the final piece of the armor. I mentioned last week that I have a coin that one of our elders, Doug Gully, gave me and several here in this church. In fact, I wanted to get everybody this coin, so I asked Doug to give me his source, and I looked up the source, and I would have had to break into what little retirement I have to buy these coins for everybody. So, I changed my mind. And my son, Mo, came up with a better idea. He said, Dad, what about just... Maybe before the sermon series is over, maybe next Sunday we can get Ken, always get Ken, get Ken to make a, maybe a, a piece of paper that could be kind of cool design and just on a, on a simple piece of paper, run through a copier. We could give to our church family these, 
these pieces of armor that they could put maybe in a place where they would see it every morning and just be able to pray through that and put that armor on. I thought it was a great idea. So no coin, but, but paper, paper. And um, I'm just having a little fun, but it is, it is going to be something we work on. But I noticed as I looked at this, you know, it's, it's just a great little piece of reminder. It talks about these different pieces of the armor. Last week we talked about those pieces, the belt of truth. The fact that that sincerity and living the Christian life sincerely and honestly, being honest about ourselves and honest about our relationship with Christ and not being hypocrites, but being real, authentic believers that are dressed in the righteousness of Christ, the breastplate of righteousness. Not our own righteousness, not the deeds that we do, not self-righteousness, but in the imputed righteousness of God that provides a way for us to not be condemned, but to live our lives with his righteousness. And then the readiness, the shoes, the readiness of the gospel of peace. In other words, the boldness it takes to, to witness for others. And we need to put those shoes on. God, help me to say what I should say and, and help me, Lord, to speak up when you lead me to speak up. I've got my shoes. I'm ready. And then we talked about the shield of faith. The Bible tells us this shield of faith is to quench the fiery darts. And we talked about there might be a hundred or a thousand fiery darts, but three would be doubts and discouragement. And I can't remember the third one was, but we talked about several ways that those fiery darts can fire at us. And we need the shield of faith to believe that God is in control. And we can trust him with our lives. And then we talked about the helmet of salvation. I'm saved. Hallelujah. Ask me how I'm doing. How are you doing, Eric? I'm saved. I'm a believer. I'm a child of God. I'm going to spend an eternity in heaven. I've got my helmet on today. Wow. Isn't that amazing? These are the things we talked about. But this weapon is different. This piece of the armor is different. In fact, if I look at my coin, it's the central piece. It's what's on top of all the others. It's a weapon called the sword of the spirit. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 on the screen. It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So I got my samurai sword. I got this when I went to Japan with my mother-in-law, right? Miss Yoshida is Japanese. She had never been to Japan, so her white son-in-law had to take her. <laughs> I thought she, like, you know, was born in Japan, lived in Japan all her life. No, that was her family. That was her parents. They came over as immigrants. No, she was born here, and she'd never been to Japan, so I took her for a week. I spent a week with my mother-in-law. We had fun, didn't we? Didn't fight one time. That's why I don't tell mother-in-law jokes. When you got a mother-in-law as good as I do, you don't tell good jokes. Plus, she's a good cook. And she cleans dishes and everything. She's amazing. Love my mother-in-law. So this sword came from... Now, it's, 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 it's intimidating. In fact, to be honest with you, just holding this sword, I just feel... <laughs> Come on! I mean, you just... You feel... You just feel good. In fact, I better give this to Parker. Hold that just in case some kid decides to come up here and play with it after the service. Actually, Parker, give that to Darian, okay? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Parker, you're good. Just keep it. So the sword is an offensive weapon. And when the soldier takes the sword in hand, the battle is about to be won. Did you hear me? It's about to be won. It's an offensive weapon. The sword is what we thrust through the enemy. So as the enemy assaults us, and he does, he's assaulted me this week. Yes, sir. As the enemy assaults us, I can take out the truth of God, the word of God, and the battle is won with scripture. Amen, amen, amen. I love Isaiah 54 verse 17 on the screen. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. No weapon. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. It's not a weapon, a physical weapon. It's not a physical sword. It's not flesh. It is divine. And it's powerful. And it destroys strongholds. It is, friends, the word of God. It's the Bible. Oh, listen, we need to read it. We need to get locked into it. In fact, I'm going to be honest with you this morning. I'm locked into Scripture. I mean, so locked in that 
I mean, it may seem like Eric. I mean, really, you seem a little extreme on this thing about the Bible. And I mean, the Word of God, are you really that locked in? Yes, I'm that locked in to knowing that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. I'm locked in. I'm locked into the fact that my sins are forgiven. And that Jesus Christ shed his blood on Calvary to redeem me, to save me. I'm locked into the fact that I'm going to spend an eternity with Jesus in heaven. I'm locked into the fact that I'm going to protect my life from damaging addictions. And I'm going to use the word of God to do it. I'm locked into protecting my children and my grandchildren by teaching them the word of God. And keeping them grounded in scripture and in the church and in small group and around the right crowd. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm locked in. So maybe you're asking this question. Preacher, can you teach me how to use it? Well, I'll tell you what, maybe the best person to teach us how to use this weapon is Jesus. So let's go to Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to see how Jesus himself used this weapon. Now remember, Jesus is the author of the scriptures. Amen? So remember that as we read through Matthew chapter number 4. How do I fight to win? We fight to win when truth replaces deception. We fight to win when truth replaces deception. So keep this thought in mind. Name the lie. Insert the truth. Name the lie. Insert the truth. James chapter 4 in verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will what? He'll flee. So let's see what happened in Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. You know what's interesting here? Why was he led out by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted? Why? You know, I mean, there's a lot of, could be a lot of different opinions about that, but I think it's clear here that he is going to show us how to have victory. Satan is not going to defeat Jesus Christ, but Jesus was an example to us. And Jesus went through so much to show us how to go through it ourselves. So here's an example. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. If this were written about me, it would be after fasting for one day and one night, he was hungry. Jesus was supernatural. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, you ready, church? It is written. The author of scriptures himself is going to quote scripture. So Jesus, the author of scripture, when he was tempted of the devil, attacked by the enemy, enemy said, it's written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the devil says, All right, all right, change the subject. Let's change the subject here. So the devil now takes him to the holy city, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, which by the way, if you ever go to the Holy Land with me, we'll go to the pinnacle of the temple. We'll stand right where Satan stood with Jesus. Right there, it's an amazing moment when you see the pinnacle of the temple and the pieces of the pinnacle of the temple that were cast down. The devil takes him there and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Satan says, you're using the Bible. I'll use it myself. He says, isn't it written? He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. First of all, he misquoted scripture. And so Jesus then says, again, it is written. You shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil. He will flee from you. And then again, the devil takes him up to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And here's what Satan says to Jesus. All these will I give you if you fall down and worship me. How many of you think Satan's pretty desperate at this point? I mean, really, Jesus, I I created you and you want me to bow down and worship you? Not happening. Jesus says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve and the devil left him and behold his angels came listen name the lie insert the truth name the lie insert the truth 
the word of God. Gentlemen, I can assure you that this works against temptation. Satan comes and says, check out that woman across the office there. Isn't she nice looking? Isn't she pretty? Hey, maybe you should get to know her. Maybe you should try, try to just to see if, if she'll talk to you. The lie. And then remind Satan himself what Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they too should become one flesh. And so Satan, guess what? I'm not interested in that. Because you see, God's given me a wife and we're one flesh. So I'm not interested in your lie. I think I'll stick with the truth. Amen. Can I tell you how many times I've seen a billboard with a provocative picture or a commercial or some sort of temptation that comes my way. A thought begins to invade my mind and then scripture comes and says out of the book of Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. God, I claim the mind of Christ in this moment. I want to think like you would think. I want to act like you would act. I want to look at what you would look at, God. I ask for your mind right now at this moment. Please, fill me. I, I want to stay faithful. I don't want a thought to enter my mind that would cause me to commit adultery in my thoughts. I quote that scripture. I name the lie. I insert the truth. Church, is the word of God. You say, preacher, wait a minute. So does that mean we need to memorize it? It would help a little bit. It would help. In fact, our scripture this week is Galatians. In your worship guide, Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not hard. That's, that's a memory verse for this week. How many of you sometimes feel like you probably love yourself more than your neighbor? Pretty much all the time for me. I mean, I love myself. Oh, I'm telling you, I love Erica Pace. I take good care of myself. I eat whenever I want to eat. I sleep when I want to sleep. I mean, I love me. And so I can tell you one thing. Scripture says, love your neighbor like you love yourself. Amen. I need that reminder. I need to love others like I love myself. A lot of truth here, guys. What am I saying? I'm saying take up the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. And the battle is won with the Word of God. Let me close with this. Romans chapter 16. I want our parents especially to listen as we hear the Word of God this morning and be obedient. Look at what Scripture says in closing. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise to that which is good. So the idea here is that do what the Scripture says and most of your battles, if not all of them, will be won. Just be wise concerning good. Yet today I feel like as if we live under this mirage that we need to be more wise to that which is evil. Notice it says to be innocent to that which is evil, but wise to that which is good. It goes on to say that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We don't need a PhD in Satanology. I think too many times we have this philosophy that says, hey, you know what? Let's just let the world in our home and let's let our kids do things that are not really, uh, you know, going to honor God. And as long as we're there to see it and monitor it, and as long as we're at the R-rated movie, as long as we're watching things with them, or, or maybe we just sort of say they got to grow up sometimes, so they got to experience the world, they got to learn the hard way, and we end up falling under this lie that says, we don't need to be wise about that which is good and innocent to that which is evil, but rather, really, let's just, let's get a taste of evil. Let's get it out of our system. Man, I'd like to, I'd like to just say, could we have three cheers for wholesomeness and godliness, protecting our kids against some of the things. I think sometimes we are so afraid of going back to our past that we forget that it wasn't all bad. Some of the things we learned growing up and, and, and some of the things we learned that we need to protect ourselves from, and I, notice I'm not mentioning much specific. I think I said R-rated movie. That's about it. I'm not picking on specific things. I'm simply saying, church, we might want to consider being a little bit more wise to what is good because that's what Scripture says. Wholesome. It may be wise for us to kind of evaluate. You say, preacher, man, this, you said you were going to be excited about preaching this. I am! You say, well, it's kind of been a little tough to hear. I know, those are the best kind of messages. Can you ever take medicine that tastes good? 
Sometimes we need medicine that doesn't taste so good, but it changes the way we feel and it improves the way we live. And so I just admonish you today, church. Yes, yes, yes. Tearing down these strongholds is all about Jesus and the word of God, but it's submitting ourselves to that. And I pray that this morning, each of us will have good conversations in our homes this week, in our small groups this week. If you're not living in community, live in community. Find a place to sort this stuff out. Talk. Have, look, there's nothing wrong with seeking counsel. Seek counsel. Don't do it on your own. Boy, God's good, isn't he? The sword of the Spirit. Take it up this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. In just a moment, we're going to give this invitation, this response time. Give you a chance to just come and pray, seek the Lord. Whatever you feel as if you need to do. And so I'm asking you to consider that. Take a moment with your spouse, with your children, with yourself. And just seek the Lord this morning. Determine the word of God is going to be the weapon that you use against the enemy. Tear down the argument. Tear down the lofty opinion. Tear down the speculation. Get it out. Get rid of it. Remove it from your life. Remove it from your home. Let's replace our thinking with the word of God. Father, I thank you again for this opportunity. May we serve you today with, Lord, a humility that comes before you, understanding that, God, we cannot do this in the flesh. We cannot live the Christian life on our own. Trying harder, more effort has never worked. But, God, may we submit ourselves to the word of God this morning. Father, I pray that we live our lives Lord, through the power of the Spirit of God, a divine weapon that can tear down the thinking that has entrenched our minds. God, change us forever. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand?